Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. 28 years ago, Greg Araki premiered his fifth, and in my opinion, best feature at the Sundance Film Festival when he presented The Doom Generation, a confrontational and gleefully anarchistic Lovers on the Run movie. That movie is a stone-cold masterpiece whose influence continues to be felt today on things like Euphoria. But after its brief festival run, it was never really properly seen again, for a variety of reasons that you'll soon learn. This month, a new 4K restoration of the Doom Generation hits theaters, giving audiences the chance to finally see Iraqi's cult classic in all its intended glory. I was very excited to sit down with Greg to talk about the restoration, and what it was like to make the movie, and like him, I highly recommend that you seek this new version out on the big screen and watch it with an audience. Here's my conversation with Greg Araki. So I want to start with the restoration itself. I was I was really excited when I saw the new version at Sundance because I've basically been watching this movie on a 133 DVD that I've had for years. It's shocking to me that the movie has survived all this time as a cult as a cult uh, film with its with its devoted audience all these years because the the copy is terrible. And you know, I was talking to Marcus about it and it's like you know, when it, it played in theaters for like five minutes, I mean, it was literally like, I don't think the amount of people that have seen it in a theater, probably um, outside of its festival screenings, um, are is minuscule. So, you know, the, the re-release is actually, I think, playing more cities than the original release in 1995. So, um, yeah, and the and the version that exists is you know it was never properly letterboxed, and the I you know the master is not great. There's a lot of stuff I didn't like in terms of color and you know the sound, and it just it was not really you know not only is it not up to technical standards in terms of for streaming or for Blu-ray or you know for for modern um, in terms of modern video, but it's just in terms of me as a you know director approving the, a movie it's not up to snuff so um you know i'm so thrilled about this new version because i just want those old versions to just die forever there's also uh, like just atrocious r-rated version of um doom generation floating around which i never approved and i i did not want them to even make and they did it without my knowledge the distributors it's called like the blockbuster cut and basically they it's the movie is so butchered it's like not even worth watching and you know and and i see you know i i said i wanted in big red letters on the box like this version is not approved by me you know and of course they didn't do that and i've seen it pop up in weird places like i remember it was on some IMDb like free side or something i mean the thing about the the r-rated version of doom generation that's so ridiculous is that you know the whole movie it doesn't really have much like sex or nudity like real like nudity it does you know i wanted to make this kind of nc-17 it was always supposed to be an nc-17 movie but it's more in just the content of it and i remember when the, the they were cutting this r-rated version it's like the mpa was literally like there wasn't just like 
the dick shot the cut you know to cut out or yeah there wasn't there wasn't shots for them that were easy to excise it was like literally they were like the whole tone of this movie is offensive to us so you just need to butcher it so it literally is not even whole and so they just like cut like 20 minutes out of it. it's like not even worth watching i don't even know why it exists but so anyway i'm so glad that all of those old versions are gone and now there's this new exciting uh you know, remixed, uh, recolor timed. And, you know, the movie, when I saw it, I haven't seen it for years. And it's just such a beautiful movie. The DP, Jim Feely, and the production designer, the late, great Therese DePress, did such a fantastic job on, you know, such a low, like it was like 750 or something, and $750,000. It was a low budget indie movie. And um, they did such a fantastic job. It's such a beautiful, it's so beautifully shot and lit and the design's incredible. And I'm so glad that it can exist now as it's meant to be seen, as it's really never been seen, as it's really not been properly seen for, you know, forever. Well, how come the original DVD wasn't put out letterboxed or with the right color or anything like that? I mean, <laughs> the story of this movie is so um, wrought with, you know, we were picked up by Samuel Goldwyn and then we got dropped by Samuel Goldwyn because um, the, I guess the acquisitions people got bought the movie and then Goldwyn himself saw it and was horrified. And, and so the Trimark ended up picking it up from that. And it was just like a whole kind of rigmarole getting released in the first place. That's why I'm so shocked that the movie survived all these years, but um, yeah, so it was, you know, they just dumped it on video and, and and uh you know didn't even bother to letterbox it or anything and yeah you know, and i think at the time you know this i was a little more angrier punk rock in those days i think i was also angry with them the distributors you know so there wasn't a lot of um cooperation going on like i remember vaguely you know this is like 2000 or something i mean this is like like well after the film was released they were doing some sort of new dvd version of it but lionsgate was i think and they asked me to you know supervise or something and i said no <laughs> so, so um yeah so now it's you know great that it can exist as it's as it's meant to exist and uh, for a whole new audience so it's cool so how did it get back into your hands and what was the sort of starting point for creating this new restoration? It was really because of Sundance, you know, they were, they were interested in restoring it and, you know, Marcus and John from Strand releasing, you know, I've known Marcus for years and they handle a bunch of my movies. And, and so they were just talking about, Oh, well, when is Doom, you know, going to become available again? And um, we're actually doing nowhere as well, which has never been released in the U S on D even on DVD. It literally exists as a VHS. And it's the same thing it has this crazy cult following of people. I don't even know how they've seen it, but, um, but yeah, so the, both those movies are, are getting the, the remaster 4k uh, deluxe treatment. So that's, it's, it's really exciting and cool. I'm so grateful and happy about it well you're going back to when you made doom generation so at that point you know you were mentioning your cinematographer and your production designer and at that point the movies you had made before this were pretty much even though like you know they a couple of them had gotten art house theatrical releases they were still pretty much like do-it-yourself movies you were your own dp so what was it like uh how did you find it making you know how big of a leap was it from say totally fucked up to this um, in terms of scale and resources and how did you find 
that adjustment of going from being the kind of one man show to actually having to delegate and communicate what you wanted to to department heads? It was a big leap. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, Doom Generation is always going to hold um, such a special place in my heart <laughs> because it was really my first real movie with a casting director, a DP, a production designer, you know, and a crew and an AD and, and um, yeah, so it was just a, a whole leap for me in terms of, you know, aesthetically and also just personally, just making movies. And yeah, it, it was great that I had already made four movies because my vision was so intact and I, it, th that process of it in terms of um, having these images in my head and, and knowing what I wanted and working with the actors and, you know, just the, 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 the raw filmmaking part of it was very much the same, but it was just having the apparatus around of, of all these other people. And I remember like the walkie talkies always through it. There were like so many <laughs> walkie talkies. Um, but it was fantastic in the sense that, um, you know, I could do things and that's why it was such, and you feel it when you watch the movie, there was just this creative, like sort of, uh, it was kind of a revolutionary thing for me, the idea that you could just have like a motel room be all red. You know, it's like in, in my, in my, in my um, previous movies, it was, you know, they were all basically location shot or, you know, shot in somebody's apartment or, you know, and so it was always, you know, we just were doing the best we could in terms of <laughs> having some sort of visual design, but the idea that you creatively, you know, the sky was a limit, you know, and so, um, you know, just sort of taking my aesthetic, which was always, you know, very um, Lynchian and very influenced by that surrealism and then the being sort of a dream world and a sort of stylized heightened world that was not just documentary reality. The idea that you could take that to the next level um, was, you know, so amazing and so fantastic. And, and being able to work, collaborate with people like Jim, Therese, and um, all the people who worked on the movie and just sort of realized this vision. You know, I remember the black and white um, checked room from Doom Generation. Literally, I um, on Therese's desk was a postcard because we were like, what are we going to do for the second room? Because we had already decided about the red room for the first room. And for the second room, like, what should we do? And then Therese had a postcard on her desk of like a checked pattern or something. And I just said, let's do that. You know, and so then she just created it out of nothing. I mean, you know, with no budget or anything, you know, she like had to hand paint that whole <laughs> It was just such an incredible amount of work. And um, just the first things like that to just become real was was amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really an extraordinary movie for even, you know, $750,000. I mean, that's not nothing but it's still fairly low budget for the ambition that this movie had yeah it would no very ambitious and I, that's one of the things i was so amazed when we were remastering it it's just a gorgeous movie i mean it's so you know beautifully designed and lit jim did such a cool job with the lighting like the light is so it's the lighting is so special you know what i mean like there's just this real quality to it that you know i i we hired jim because he was not really 
a feature film DP at that time. He'd mainly done like a lot of music videos and worked with Bruce Weber a lot. And, and you know, so he was had this kind of stylized look and, and the film, you know, was very influenced by that sort of Bruce Weber aesthetic of just like beauty and, and these faces of, you know, like, like Rose and Jimmy and Jonathan are just like at the zenith of their, of their ripeness. I mean, they're all so gorgeous. And so the way they're lit and the close-ups and everything, I was just like, wow, it's just like such a, a beautiful, beautiful movie. And that's why it's so cool to be remastered. So it like, because it is a beautiful movie and that it can be seen that way instead of just letterboxed on some shitty transfer so. I'm curious, you know, knowing what a sort of film historian and buff you were and, you know, thinking about some of the, you know, your earlier movies, how many, you know, how self-referential they are in terms of having like the characters named like Jean and Luke after Godard and things like that. You know, for, for this movie, for Doom Generation, I mean, how did you see it in terms of like the context of film history? I mean, were there movies that you had as reference points or influences that you were reacting to or against or using as kind of you know, structural templates, the way you had used bringing up baby before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, these movies, the, the 90s movies in particular, they're all very, I'm still pretty much kind of fresh out of film school a little bit in terms of my, in terms of my sensibility and in terms of my, my vision. And, you know, I was very into these sort of outlaw couple on the run movies from film school. Um, you know, Bonnie Clyde, they live by night. And, you know, that's what The Living End is. And, you know, that's kind of what I, you know, wanted to, the genre I wanted to work in with this movie. And also there's um, this sort of, you know, threesome movie of, <laughs> you know, design for living and, and all that. It's very, you know, the, all of that is all very much a part of what, you know, came together in, in um, Doom Generation, I remember, and also I remember, you know, being, you know, so young and so rebellious and so artsy that, you know, I remember telling producers, like, like, I want this to be like Last Tango in Paris for teenagers. Like, I want it to be like that kind of provocative, like, you know, movie that people like, oh my God, that, you know, that movie. Yeah, I really wanted it to be, you know, X-rated or NC-17 and, and just kind of, you know, shocking and just really subversive and transgressive and all that, all that fun stuff. Well, in terms of making a movie that's transgressive and NC-17 and, you know, you've got a $750,000 budget, which again, big jump from what you've been working with before. How did you raise the money for it to make that jump? It was funny because um, the, the producer, Jim Stark, who worked on Living End and uh, was involved in Doom Generation at first, but then it ultimately um, couldn't do the movie. But he told me, he said that, um, you know, he's like, you make these gay movies that you know, are too punk rock for gay people. <laughs> you know, the gay people don't like them because they're, they're too crazy, you know? And, you know, it's true that, you know, The Living End had, you know, had very passionate fans, but at the same time, equally passionate uh, detractors. Like, you know, it was very polarizing in the, with the gay audience and there were you know, gay people who loved it and then other more mainstream gay people who were just outraged by it and hated it and so um after you know he said if you ever make a heterosexual movie you know i'll get you a real budget for it and you know I'll produce it and um so 
in my sort of punk rock way, I like, you know, subtitled movie, a heterosexual movie by Gregor Rock in the way that, um, you know, Totally Fucked Up is called Another Homo Movie by Gregor Rock. And so I, um, so I made this sort of heterosexual movie, but it's so blatantly like queer, you know what I mean? In terms of its sensibility and its homoeroticism. So it's sort of the, the gayest straight movie possible. And um, I always thought of the movie as sort of a Trojan horse in the way that, you know, it, it presents itself as heterosexual with the, you know, beautiful Amy Blue character and that sort of menage, menage sort of uh, structure of it. But um, it's a very, very queer movie. And there's a, you know, clearly a very, it's the, the homoerotic subtext is so exaggerated that it's, that it's, um, <laughs> it's sort of like a, my in-joke kind of. Uh, you mentioned having a casting director on this movie for the first time. And one of the things I love about it is the very strange supporting cast choices you make. I mean, from having like, you know, you've got all these sort of pop culture personalities like Heidi Fleiss and then like, you know, uh, TV stars like the guy from Brady Bunch and Lauren Tewes and uh, Amanda Beers from Married with Children, I think is in there. Um, what was your thinking in terms of casting those kinds of people? And what was your experience like working with them? It was uh, working with them was fantastic. They were all such pros and so great to work with them. Um, what I was really thinking, you know, they're read a lot of times people think of them as like kind of just crazy cameos. And I didn't at the time think of them in that way. I, I'd like them to, I told the casting director that I wanted all the supporting parts to be familiar faces in the sense that because the world of Doom Generation is very much kind of surreal, nightmarish world. Um, and I was so influenced by, you know, again, David Lynch and the whole idea of cinema and dreams and how the, the collision of the, of the two. Um, I wanted to be like the way you're dreaming and people from movies you've seen or TV, you know, like weird celebrities, <laughs> like pop up in your dreams. You know what I mean? So it's like, almost unsettling in a way and it's familiar and it's unsettling at the same time and that's kind of how um, I approached all of those parts in Doom Generation and in Nowhere is like that you're there's just this because I was you know so interested in this kind of stylized fantastical world I mean one of the things um in terms of my movies is I've never been a big fan of like shaky camera, ugly life, <laughs> you know, real, real, like this is documentary reality, you know, it's really like, I'm interested in this sort of stylized, fantastical, like imagination world, you know, I mean, to me as a filmmaker, and it, as an audience member too, I'm just, I like being immersed in that as opposed to this regular reality, which I find a bit boring. And then in, in terms of casting the leads, you know, you've got, I think, Rose McGowan, I think pre-Scream, you know, James Duvall, I don't remember seeing him in anything before seeing him in your movies. Um, huh? Yeah, aside from Totally Fucked Up. Um, and, you know, you've got, well, first I'll talk about putting together just these yeah, Jonathan Check, like also fairly early on. Um, talk about putting those three together and, and how you kind of came to cast that threesome. I was very specific in, um, in had a picture in my head of what Amy looked like and what she sounded like. And, you know, I wrote that part of Jordan for Jimmy, so he was already cast, fortunately. And so, and then, um, 
the same with the Xavier character. I just had this feel. I just knew exactly what it, what I wanted and what it was going to be. But it was so hard to find. Like we just we read everybody, and you know, there's including a lot of like like really famous people. You know, it's like when you look at the casting list, there's people that are like went on to become huge stars that um, weren't right. And it was like I want I always wanted Amy to be this like tiny, um, like tiny dynamite. You know, like this tiny little. Um, figure that was like I mean I had this image of her being tiny behind a wheel of car you know and but but like a such a larger than life character and so when we were casting it was very frustrating for the casting director because I was just like no 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 like everybody was wrong you know and Jonathan was actually the first person that you know, um got the script like yeah I remember he came in and I just had this image of the ex character as being kind of enigmatic and and sexy and handsome but in a very specific way you know like a and you know Jonathan like almost a feral kind of way and Jonathan had that in the way that none of the other actors did and I remember the casting director being kind of shocked when I because I was like oh yeah I give him the script because nobody had read, gotten the script yet you know so um it was it, you know it was, it, it was one of those things like it, it was I'll know it when I'll see it, you know, kind of situation. And you know, and the same the same with the Amy Blue character. It was a a very uh, long search, but uh, but it it, it worked out. <laughs> well, you know, thinking about this and nowhere and some of your other movies, you work a lot with pretty young actors. And I'm curious, what are the challenges and what are the pleasures of working with people who are relatively new and not that experienced? I mean, you know, it's fantastic in the sense of, you know, there's such a sense of discovery amongst people like that. You know, it's like, yeah, it, it's really because it's new, it's new for everybody as opposed to, you know, you know, not to, not one, <laughs> I don't want to mention it, but the idea you work with like a veteran actor, you know, I mean, that's been around and like really so established and their screen iconography is so established and it's, they're fantastic, you know what I mean? Because when you work with, you know, somebody who's been around for a while, they're such pros and they like, boom, like always, yeah, they, there's, they have such control of their instrument, you know what I mean? And that, that's why they're amazing professional actors. But the, when you have these new people, um, there's just, there's a lot of support, more surprise, I guess, you know, more like, Oh, like, you know, it's just, there's this, that sense of discovery that's always super fun and super exciting. And that was one of the great things about, you know, making Doom Generation is that because it was low budget, because it was indie, it wasn't like, get like these name people, <laughs> get three people from this list or, you know, it was really just like find somebody out there that really fits the part for you, you know, that really, it, that is it doesn't matter you know if they're completely unknown because i mean rose had literally been like an extra in encino man you know jimmy had only been in um you know totally fucked up and and um jonathan had done uh, he just did that zephyrelli movie right before but he was really up and coming and nobody knew who he was so it was super cool that way you know to be able to to have that kind of freedom to really not have to work play that kind of name game thing yeah, you mentioned, you know, again, you had 
DP, casting director, production designer, but you still edited the movie yourself. And as far as I know, unless I'm forgetting one, you still pretty much always have continued to edit your own movies, right? Yeah, I, I love to edit. I mean, even uh, now, Focalbus, my star show that I did a few years ago, um, I had editors on the show, but I like kind of did every, like I went through and like they be, they kind of did like edits that were longer. And then I kind of went in and just, you know, <laughs> had my hands all over it. So, I mean, I love editing. It's one of my favorite parts of the process. And to me, um, you know, one of the most creative parts of the process it, it, because it all becomes very, you know, when you're writing um, and when you're editing, you're like by yourself with the with the stuff you know what i mean and, and it's like it's such a pure part of the process and i remember particularly for doom generation because it was actually one of the first movies that was ever edited on on avid and it was like a, um it was you know my first time editing digitally which was so incredible and it was just like such a you know i had a stack of like drives <laughs> to 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 um do the uh, to store the show and it was like a really low resolution stuff but it was just so amazing to be able to to work digitally like that but I remember specifically because I was a little bit traumatized by the production because it was so many people around you know what I mean and then to be able to then retreat back to like it's just me and the avid and the footage and this just creative process of create you know creating the movie from the dailies that was um super fun and super exciting I mentioned I saw the the restoration at Sundance this year at 2023 and you you premiered the movie at Sundance, right? When you first made it, it was almost and and at the Egyptian, so it was very much like a really cool deja vu experience for me and Jimmy and Jonathan and Andrea Spurning, the producer. Like it was the scene of the crime. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it was um, where the movie had its world premiere, and it was super exciting and crazy night both nights so what was the reaction like at that initial world premiere back in the 90s the, it was very um i remember it just being very intense and i remember when the movie was over people just literally it was like they'd been run over by a truck like it was this sense of like <laughs> the movie had a huge impact on people um and you know, we got this amazing like um, variety review out of that screening, and um, you know that's what, how we got picked up and stuff. But um, it was, yeah, it was. I'll never forget it. It was just because, again, it was my first big movie. I remember, I think it was Cooper introduced it, or I don't know, if it was Cooper or Jeff Gilmore, but they were just talking about like, yeah, you know, Greg made another movie. It's just like, and somehow. He convinced somebody to give him a million dollars to do it because <laughs> it was very, um, yeah, it definitely was not a watered down version of my vision. If anything, if anything, it was like a more intense, expanded version of my vision because it because the budget allowed me to like just do crazier things. Now you mentioned the um, you know the blockbuster cut and all that, but is there anything in this new restoration? 
Is there anything in here content-wise that's different from what people would have seen if they went to see the movie on its initial theatrical release? And yes, like there's a, it's that's one of the things we did is that the restoration is it restores. It's not a lot, but it's mainly in the last reel and the sort of climactic like scene. It's um, there's stuff that was cut out at the at the request of the theatrical distributor that we did that. Um, has been put back in with if anything <laughs> but the ending of the movie is so intense and it's always been into and now it's even a little bit more intense so it would take a real expert i mean even i have a hard time figuring out exactly what's what's back but it's the impact of it is is it is a little bit more intense than it used to be uh, well, my my last question, uh, question is uh, going into the, you know, the end credits of the movie. You've got this thing where you thank Jordan Ladd, but you have a sort of specific like no thanks to Cheryl Ladd. Uh, ex- explain that. There is a sort of legendary story about about Doom Generation that it's actually, yeah. I mean, it's such a great story that I'm. It's almost. You know, it makes me happy that it happened all of the time. It was traumatizing. Um, Jordan Ladd, who was actually, became a friend of mine and was actually cast in Nowhere. Um, but she was originally cast in um, the Amy Blue part. And it was literally a week before we were supposed to start shooting. And she had been to costume fitting and we were just about to cut her hair and dye her hair and um she went home for christmas and we had just had a read through me her and jonathan and jimmy and then it was christmas break and she's all i'm gonna have ask my mom to rehearse with me so to help me learn my lines and, and her mom of course is sure lad from you know from the 70s and i was like really like you know i don't really um let my parents read my scripts you know? <laughs> you know it's just like for a good reason you know they love me and they support me but i don't want to traumatize them by having them read you know my scripts and she's like no no my mom's real cool blah 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 um and then so cut to christmas day i'm in santa barbara with my family and the phone rings and my mom's like it's cheryl ladd on the phone <laughs> i'm just like what and so Cheryl Ladd calls me up at my parents' house. I guess she just my, I guess she just found my parents' number in the phone book or something. And um, he said, "This is Cheryl Ladd, George Monday, blah 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 blah. This movie is so inappropriate, and and Jordan Ladd is not Jordan is not doing this movie. She's 19 years old. Da, 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 da. And I'm just like, you know, I, you know, I'm also, you know, more punk rock in those days, so." Um, yeah, I'm just like, you know, I'm an artist, you know, you can't tell me what to do. It's just like this, this movie is going to be amazing. And I, it's really weird because I remember specifically, I mean, this is kind of how punky and bratty I was in those days. I remember specifically telling Cheryl, Cheryl, I said, you know, you're going to have to explain to Jordan when whoever's in this movie um, is on the cover of Interview Magazine. That's going to be on you. Do you know what I mean? And um, Rose McGowan was on the cover of Interview Magazine literally three months or something after Generation came out. And um, 
I remember saying that. And it's just so funny that I was you know, that brash and confident about it. But um, yeah, so anyway, long story short, you know, it all worked out in the end and Jordan was in nowhere and you know we became friends and and all that but you know so that's why there was a big no thanks to Cheryl Ad. so I never she's never been in any of my movies so <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right well is there anything else you want to say to people about uh, Doom Generation before we sign off I just want to say um I'm so excited for people if to see it in theater if they can it's such a um it's such a theatrical experience to watch it with an audience in a theater. And it's like just a super fun, intense and crazy ride. And I'm so glad that we've had this chance to, to revisit it. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking with me, Greg. This has been great. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim.